0: We're working with the idea that the great theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God. That is the overarching big idea of the Bible and its message. The kingdom of God understood as God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And it's time once again for a little quiz. I want to remind us of the big picture and the eight stages of that kingdom. The kingdom began in the garden, God ruling over Adam and Eve in that garden paradise. So we have there the what? The pattern of the kingdom. You're allowed to speak out loud. But when man sinned in the garden, we have the perished kingdom. Did I hear that? Perished kingdom. But then in chapter 12 of Genesis, God zeroes in on one man who will become very pivotal in the history of redemption, Abraham. And God makes a covenant with Abraham, and then we have the promised kingdom. The result of the promises to Abraham, I'll make a great nation out of you, I'll give you a land, and ultimately all the families of the earth will be blessed. The product of that covenant with Abraham is Israel as a nation, and there we have the partial kingdom, partially fulfilled kingdom. Israel fails, and we'll see further today. We'll see in these weeks that Israel is going to fail. It will not be the perfect kingdom. And so God raises up at a certain point prophets to announce the, a better kingdom coming. And so we have the, gave it away, prophesied kingdom. And then finally, the prophecies of the prophets are fulfilled. And in the fullness of time, God sends forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, And we have in Jesus the present kingdom, the kingdom in which we are now living. And as those in the present kingdom, we are called to proclaim the kingdom. So we have the proclaimed kingdom. And what is the proclamation? Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Our proclamation to the world is repent and believe in the gospel. And then eventually, Christ is going to come back and we're going to have the perfect kingdom. The perfected kingdom. Now, we're trying to do one sermon per book of the Bible, but as we've come to 1st and 2nd Samuel, I've taken counsel from some theologians, and we're we're taking one message for each of the persons that are the predominant characters in 1st and 2nd Samuel. Samuel, Saul, and David. We've already considered Samuel and Saul. Today, we're going to consider David. And to talk about David in one sermon is certainly the most challenging. I mean, David is one of the most godly men in the scriptures. He wrote half of the Psalms in which his heart is revealed more intimately than the heart of any other writer in the Bible. The Psalms contain a whole spectrum of human emotions. How are we going to represent David in one sermon? Well, we are not adequately. But neither can you capture one book of the Bible in one sermon. And that's why we're doing this, this flyover overview. And so what I'm going to do this morning is give you a flyover of David's life. And um, going to be a lot of points and they're going to be highlights. We don't have time to dig into any detail, but hopefully it will give you a good overview of the life of David. And some of these points will enable you to study further on your own. What I aim to cover this morning is this. David points us to Christ by historical parallels. David points us to Christ by personal parallels. And David points us to Christ by his sins and flaws. Theologian Tom Schreiner points us to the fact that the Saul-David narrative reflects the account of the two Adams. Saul is like the first Adam who began well, seemingly trusting in God, but later disobeyed and rebelled against God. Saul is like the first Adam. David represents the last Adam, Christ, who comes and replaces the fallen king as head of God's people, and so David especially foreshadows and points forward to Jesus Christ. David also pushes the grand story of God's kingdom forward In this sense, God made a covenant with David which promised that his kingdom would be everlasting. That is, someone from David's line, one of his descendants, would establish a kingdom that would never end. Listen to the words, some of the words, of the covenant God made with David in 2 Samuel 7. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And the prophets pick up on this, and the writers of the New Testament pick up on this. For example, we just came through the Christmas season, Isaiah 9, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Isaiah 11, 1. Then a root will spring from the stem of Jesse, David's father, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely. So the future Messiah, the Savior, will not only be from the seed of the woman, the descendant of Abraham, But we learned that the ultimate Messiah will be from the line of David. You come to the New Testament and you see that an angel comes to Mary and says to Mary, he, the one who will be born of you, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. The Pharisees understood that the Messiah would be from the line of David. And oftentimes in the Gospels, when people come to Jesus, they call upon him as the son of David. For example, two uh, blind men following him cry out, have mercy on us, son of David. The Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. So the kingdom established under David provides a foreshadowing of the kingdom of Jesus, the Messiah. We'll look first at the historical parallels that point us to Jesus and then some of the personal parallels. David points us to Christ by historical parallels. First, David and Jesus were both unlikely candidates for kingship. After Saul was rejected as king, the Lord directed Samuel the prophet to make another king. In 1 Samuel 16:1, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. So David goes to the home of Jesse, and as you know, Jesse parades in front of Samuel seven of his sons, and they are physically impressive sons. And even Samuel lacks the discernment, thinking surely one of these guys is the Lord's anointed. But God says no. And so that forces Jesse to fetch his youngest son from tending the, the sheep. And that, of course, is David. And David is the one that Samuel anoints, and he does so with these well-known words. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Dale Ralph Davis, a commentator I've often been quoting, says, God's strange and refreshing way of tramping on human standards. Again, we see how Yahweh chooses the most unlikely people to do his will and how frequently he stands human logic on its head. So David was an unlikely candidate for kingship. What about Jesus? You know, Jesus comes to his hometown of Nazareth, and the people say, recorded in Mark 6 3, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They said, This can't be the Messiah. He lives up the street. He's just a regular guy. And they were offended. On another occasion, Jesus addressed the objections that the Pharisees had, and he says this, for John, that would be John the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So they rejected Jesus because no, he, he's too fun-loving. He, he's too worldly to be the Messiah. And when Jesus hung on the cross, his enemies mocked him, By saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross. You see, Messiahs were not supposed to suffer. And so, like David, Jesus was an unlikely candidate for kingship. Secondly, David and Jesus both experienced a mighty anointing and great persecution. In 1 Samuel 16, 13... We read, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel received a mighty anointing and the Spirit came upon him. But that also led to trouble because David wasn't immediately exalted to the throne, but rather um, he he was pursued by by the, the jealous wrath of King Saul. And he spent years running and hiding in caves and living in exile and being driven to the edge of his emotional strength until Saul died. Experienced a mighty anointing, but then persecution followed. What about Jesus? We're told in Matthew 3 that he was baptized. And at his baptism, the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. But what happened next? The same spirit who descended upon him led him into the wilderness where he was tempted severely by the devil for 40 days. And then he launches his ministry. And friends, never one day of Jesus' ministry was he without enemies dogging his heels, waiting in the wings to pounce on him, watching his every move, listening to his every word for some slip-up, trying to trick him with questions, The Sadducees, with their liberal unbelief, attacking him. The Pharisees, with their man-made rules, attacking him. His own family thought he was out of his mind and needed to go to green pastures or Whispering Hope. His own disciples lacked understanding. And so both King David and King Jesus were powerfully anointed by the Spirit of God, but they were also opposed in their kingdom efforts. Thirdly, David and Jesus were both providentially preserved and protected by the Lord. One of the fascinating strands that runs through this narrative in 1st and 2nd Samuel is the way that God amazingly and variably protected David as he was being pursued by Saul. He was the anointed king. He was destined for the throne, and God was not going to allow any harm to come to David. But it's amazing to see how God providentially protected him. On two occasions, Saul threw a spear at David to kill him, and he missed. On another occasion, Saul was going to give David his daughter Michal, and he said, but as a bride price, I mentioned last week, you need to bring me 100 Philistine foreskins. You need to kill 100 Philistine men, thinking, Philistines will take care of David. And yet David kills 100 Philistines and his life is preserved. God used Saul's son, Jonathan, to uh, inform David when Saul was threatening him and Jonathan became a good friend and a protector to David. Even his wife, Michal, on one occasion protected David. Uh, Saul's men were after David. They were coming to his home and David had left. And so what she does is she puts a, a household idol in the bed and pretending that's David. It's kind of like what people do in California, get in trouble for I don't know, do we have HOV lanes here, high occupancy vehicle lanes, where if you've got more than one person, you can, you can travel in the fast lane? Well, they have that out in California, and some people have been known to put mannequins in the passenger seat thinking, you know, "Eh, more than one person here, and they get found out, and, of course, they get fined for that. But she put a mannequin in his bed and basically to fool the people and to protect David. When Saul um, sent men to seize David in Ramah, God caused his spirit to fall upon these men, and they prophesied, and that distracted him. When Saul himself came down, the spirit came upon Saul, and he prophesied, and that was God bringing a distraction On another occasion, when Saul and 3,000 men had David surrounded, and if you're reading the account, you're thinking, how in the world is he going to get out of this? They know where David is, 3,000 men surrounding the city where he is, and what happens? Saul gets word that the Philistines have made a raid on the land, and, quote, he returned from pursuing David. A summary of God's protection of David is given in 1 Samuel 23, 13, And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. Now, what about Jesus? Well, God providentially preserved Jesus also until his work was done. Remember the one occasion in Luke 4 where he comes to preach in his hometown of Nazareth, and he pokes them in the eye for their nationalistic pride. We're told by Luke that his words were gracious, But what he said provoked them. And we read there, they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Now, friends, I submit to you, if there's a crowd of people and they want to throw any one of us off the cliff, they're going to get it done, right? But then mysteriously we read, but passing through their midst, he went his way. He just kind of knifed through the crowd, And got away. Why? Because as John 8.20 says, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Brother Clint brought this up in Sunday school that um, Jesus kept saying, my hour has not yet come. But when his hour came, but only then did God withdraw his protection. And as it says in the book of Acts, He delivered him up to be killed. So God the Father protected Jesus as he did David until, in Jesus' case, the appointed hour for him to suffer. Fourthly, David and Jesus did not return evil with evil when mistreated by enemies. I simply mention, as I mentioned last week, there were two occasions when David had Saul's life in his hands. In the cave... And in the camp. He got so close on the one occasion he cut off a piece of Saul's robe. On the other occasion he, they took his spear and his water jug. David could have killed him in revenge, in retaliation. He refused to do that because he honored the Lord's anointed. Jesus did the same. He taught us to love our enemies to pray for those who persecute us, to bless those who curse us. And through his apostle Paul, what does he say in Romans 12? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When we retaliate with evil, we're being overcome by that evil. We are not to do that, but by the grace of God, overcome evil by doing good. And Jesus certainly was an example of that. From the cross He forgave with the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.23, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So neither David nor Jesus returned evil with evil. And then, fifthly under this point, David and Jesus were both representative men shepherds stepping forward to rescue God's sheep from predators. Now, we all know the story of David and Goliath, right? A lot of unbelievers know that story. It's one of the best-known stories in the Bible, David and Goliath, put in cartoon form and everything. What are we to learn from David and Goliath? Well, on the one hand, we can say David is a, a wonderful example of trust in the Lord. He goes out there with a slingshot to face a nine-foot giant. Definitely an example of trust in the Lord. David is an example to us of zeal for God's glory. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who taunts the armies of the living God? David is exemplary in many ways. But friends, if we only get moral lessons from David, we miss the main point. We should not so much identify with David in that narrative as we should identify with Israel. David was a representative man. The arrangement was the Philistines and the Israelites are fighting, and the agreement was we'll each put forth a champion. And as, as it goes in that fight between them, so it goes with us as a nation. Whoever wins, wins for His whole nation, David, represented Israel. Their future, their fate, hung on their champion. They were either going to be victors of the spoil if David won, or victims of their cruel enemy, based on the outcome of that fight. Commentator William Taylor says... We cannot see him confronting the giant with his sling and stone and consummating his destruction with his own sword without being reminded of a greater than he who foiled the prince of darkness with a triple thrust of the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and who, quote, through death destroyed him that had the power of death and delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And another commentator, Gordon Keddy, says Israel was God's flock, Goliath no more than a predator, and David stepped forward as the shepherd who would protect his sheep. This is the symbolism of redemption itself. Like Israel in the Valley of Elah, all lost humanity like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way, Isaiah 53, 6. Like David the shepherd, Jesus the good shepherd came forward ready to give his life for the sheep. But David was merely a shadow of Christ, Christ took no weapons. Christ went not to fight, but to die. For as Isaiah prophesied, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so David parallels Jesus historically in that they were both representative men. As it went with them, it went with the people they were representing. Jesus Christ as the last Adam Represents all who put their trust in him and have forgiveness of their sins. And I ask you, is he your representative? You see, there's only two choices. Either you stand before God on your own, and if you do, he will say to you, Depart from me, I never knew you, because your sin has made a separation between you and your God. The only safe way to stand before God and welcomed into his presence is if we stand there with our representative Jesus and say, Jesus is my champion. He lived for me. He died for me. And God will say, enter into the joy of your Lord. But David also points us to Christ by personal parallels. David is given one of the highest honors of anyone in the Bible when he's described as a man after God's own heart. That's huge, isn't it? Now, just construct a little logical syllogism with me. David is a man after God's own heart, major premise. Minor premise, Jesus is God in the flesh. Conclusion, David is a man after Jesus' own heart. So we can see that something in David is parallel to God and to Jesus. To be a man after God's own heart and after Jesus' own heart means there are some personal qualities and characteristics of David that that are God-like, that are Christ-like. And so we should expect some personal characteristics of David that are very much like Jesus. And I want to point out several of them. First of all, David loved the Lord. His Psalms are replete with his expressions of his love for the Lord. Psalm 18, 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. Psalm 26, 8, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house. Psalm 31, 23, O love the Lord, all you his godly ones. Psalm 40, verse 16, let those who love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. And if we ask, why did David love the Lord? Well, when you track out his expressions of love in the Psalms, he loved God for who he was. Various Psalms tell us that David loved God because of God's loving kindness, because of his grace, because of his compassion, his truth, his righteousness, his justice, his goodness for being David's rock, fortress, deliverer, refuge, shield, horn of salvation, stronghold, savior. David loved God for who he was, and he also loved God for his works. David showed his love for God by his verbal expressions of praise and adoration, which fill the Psalms. He showed his love for God by longing for fellowship with God, by his commitment to do the will of God, by his delight in the people of God and his zeal for the glory of God. David loved the Lord. What about Jesus? Jesus loved God. Now you say, well, wait a minute. Jesus is God. How can Jesus love God if Jesus is God? Well, remember that God is a triunity. He's a trinity. There are three persons. And one of the foundational truths about the triune God is that there has been a perfect love between the members of the trinity from all eternity. Jonathan Edwards likes to talk about that. Heaven is a place of love. And he says, the Father loves the Son, and the Son lo- and the Father loves the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Son and the Father, and the Son loves the Spirit and the Father. There's a perfect love that exists between the members of the Trinity. In John 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus says to his Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. And that love, of course, was reciprocal. David loved the Lord. Jesus loved the other members of the Trinity, David sought the Lord. One of the refrains that comes through the narratives about David is this, David inquired of the Lord. Over and over again, David inquired of the Lord. 1 Samuel 23, David is not officially on the throne, but the Philistines are attacking an Israelite city of Keilah, and David feels an obligation to protect them. And so it says, quote, so David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and deliver Calah. And then he wonders, Will the men of Calah deliver me up to Saul? And so again, he inquires, O Lord God of Israel, Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? O O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. On another occasion, Saul has died. The coast is clear for David to become king and and take the throne. But he doesn't just jump in and assume the throne. But we read this in 2 Samuel 2 and verse 1. Then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go up to the one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. Where shall I go up? And he said to Hebron. The point is, it was a pattern in David's life. David did not have an easy life. He had a life that was full of stress and and intensity. But one one of the refrains, David inquired of the Lord. David wanted nothing more than to know, God, what would you have me to do? And inevitably, God answered him. Remember, Saul got to the place where he inquired of the Lord, and the Lord would not answer him because he knew his heart. But David inquired of the Lord. What about Jesus? Did he inquire of the Lord to know his father's will? Well, you know the answer. On one occasion in John chapter 4, Jesus is in Samaria talking to the Samaritan woman, and his disciples had gone off to get something to eat, no doubt to Chick-fil-A, right? They would have eaten it, Chick-fil-A. And they come back and they offer Jesus something to eat, and Jesus says those famous words, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus was all about inquiring of his father to know what is my father's agenda for me. Remember Mark 1? He goes off early in the morning. His disciples come after him to bring him back to continue to heal. He's just been with his father. No, we need to go to other cities and teach there. That's why I came out. David sought the Lord. Jesus sought the Lord, his God, his Father. The Lord was with David and helped him. Another repeated refrain. 1 Samuel 18, Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him. Later on in that chapter, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David. 2 Samuel 5, David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. 2 Samuel 8, And the Lord helped David wherever he went. David sought the Lord And the Lord was with him and helped him. Why? Well, there's a connection. Because David sought the Lord, the Lord answered him and helped him. The Bible says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. As for Jesus, God help him. We're told that Jesus had the spirit without measure. We need to understand that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, Conducted his entire ministry in the power of the third person of the, the, the Spirit who indwelt him completely. Here's a fourth thing about David that parallels Jesus. David was humble. David was humble in response to favor and exaltation. He had a sense of undeservedness. In 1 Samuel 18, when he's offered the king's daughter, Saul says, Here, I'll give you my daughter as your, your wife. David says, who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? And when God promises that everlasting kingdom in 2 Samuel 7, again, David's response is, who am I? What is my house that you've brought me this far? And through that whole passage where God makes a covenant with him, David is all about the Lord. He talks about your word and your heart and your servant and your people, the word that you have spoken, that your name may be magnified. Pride, brothers and sisters, fills us with ourselves, doesn't it? The humble person is filled with God. And David was a God-centered, God-saturated man. Therefore, he was a humble man. He was also humble in response to wrongs done to him. At one point, as Saul was trying to kill him, he says, whom? Saul, whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? Why are you going after me? I'm a nobody. David was humble in response to hard providences when, as a result of his sin of adultery, God, killed, uh, God said, your son is going to die. While the son was living, David prayed and fasted, hoping that God would be merciful. But when his son died, David said, now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him. He will not return to me. He submitted to a hard providence. One of the stories I love is in 1 Samuel 16, where David is being driven out of the city by his son Absalom. And a man by the name of Shimei is running along the ridge following him, throwing stones at him, the king, and cursing him. And David's nephew wants to go and dispatch him. And David says these amazing words. You want a a cure for bitterness or vengeance? David's response, if he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? Let him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. David was a humble man. What about Jesus? Matthew 11, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Learn of me. I'm meek, humble, and lowly in heart. J.C. Ryle says, It is the only place in Scripture where the heart of Christ is actually named. It is a saying never to be forgotten. When you have a description of the heart of Jesus, the only one, what does it say? I am humble and lowly in heart. You cannot be Christ-like without humility. Fifthly, David trusted the sovereignty of God and its results. He says in Psalm 24, as we read it, "'The earth is the Lord's and all it contains.'" Your people, Psalm 110, will volunteer freely in the day of your power. Psalm 139, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. David recognized the sovereignty of God. He praised God for his victories. He trusted God with his life when he went out into the field to face the nine-foot giant. As we saw with Shimei, he entrusted himself to God. In this as well, David points to Jesus. Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will in the garden. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus placed himself under the human authorities. He made himself subject to the unjust judges of the the Sanhedrin. He made himself subject to, to Pilate. And so in both Jesus and David, there is a trust in the sovereignty of God. Jesus, we're told in 1 Peter 2, and trusted himself to him who judges justly. David was gracious, a gracious man. You know, when Saul died, you would think David would rejoice, but David mourned. In fact, a man came claiming that he had put Saul to death when Saul was wounded. David had that man killed because he was gloating over the fact that Saul had died. Though he was David's rabid enemy and sought to kill him, David mourned over his death. David was a gracious man. They say that most kings will try to rid themselves of any rival threat to their throne. David took Mephibosheth, the crippled son of his friend Jonathan, who could have been an heir to the throne, and he invited him to eat with him in his palace. David was a gracious man. As to Jesus, full of grace and truth. Finally, David had a zeal for God's justice. When God took the life of Nabal, that wicked man, David said, the Lord has also returned the evil doing on Nabal in his own head. Justice has been done. When his general, Joab, killed a righteous man, Abner, a rival, David said, may the Lord repay the evil doer according to his evil. David had a sense of justice. Jesus as well. In Psalm 72, we learn prophetically of Jesus. May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. That's talking about the Messiah. So in all these ways, King David points to Jesus, his greater son, who brought in a greater kingdom. These are are all positive things, but I want to close with some of the negative ways that David points to Jesus. See, David was the greatest king in Israel. He was the high watermark. He was the gold standard, as I'm reading ahead in the books of Kings. He's talking about different kings, and he did this, but not like his father David. He didn't follow the Lord with all his heart like David. David becomes the gold standard of kingship in Israel. He was, after all, a man after God's own heart. But friends, that was not good enough. So even as we have passed a virtue magnet over David's life to pull out some of his Christ-like virtues, ways he points to Christ positively, I now briefly want to pass a vice magnet over David's life as we close and talk about some of David's sins and flaws. And here I want to introduce it by asking you, Have you lived long enough and have you experienced enough to know that the best of men are men at best? Have you? We can tend to idolize people. My wife and I have been watching the latest edition of The Crown and it talked about Princess Diana and my wife commented, you know, when she died, the world mourned and she she was almost worshipped by people around the world. And we can tend to idolize people, put them on a pedestal. Have you lived long enough to have your greatest human heroes dethroned? I can say that I'm very grateful to God for the men living who have personally influenced my life. But I'm also very grateful that I have seen enough of their flaws to know this, that at the end of the day, the only man who should be left standing, worthy of our veneration, is one man, and that's the God man, Jesus. And David was a good man, but not good enough. We close with some of his flaws polygamy, he had several wives Michal, Hinoim the Jezreelite, Abigail, Mecha, Hagith, Abigail, Igla. Bathsheba, Deuteronomy 17, 17, expressly said that a future king, he shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, no doubt the fruit of other sins, his idleness, his lust. I remember one pastor saying that David was a connoisseur of fine flesh in the lustful sense. We might even call him a sex addict today. Momentary act of passion dealt out so much harm. David's deception, he after he committed adultery, he tried to deceive Uriah and, and the kingdom and make it appear that Uriah was really the father of, of, um, of the child that would be born. And, and so he, he even tried to make Uriah drunk uh, to give the appearance that that was the real father. And, and Uriah is so noble, he would not enjoy the benefits of home while his fellow soldiers were out there in the field. David is made to look really bad. He deceives also, he deceived himself for nine months when he he didn't come clean with his sin, right? He says in Psalm 51, God desires truth in the innermost being. He didn't do that for more than nine months while he kept his sin hidden before Nathan exposed it. He deceived when he told Ahimelech the priest, I'm on a mission from From King Saul, and that got Ahimelech in trouble later, and Ahimelech and 85 priests lost their lives because of David's deception. He goes into the land of the Philistines for protection uh, from Saul, and when they find him out, when the king of Gath finds him out, he pretends he's a madman, drooling, etc., and and then ultimately his his, uh, sin of murder, where he planned Uriah's death by having him put on the front lines. David's failure of faith, he was a man of great faith, but at one time, he goes to the Philistines to escape Saul. Commentator Ketty says it was a failure of faith. David's vengeful heart, he didn't end up killing Nabal, but he wanted to if, if Abigail had not come and dissuaded him. His parental failures. One of the consequences from David's sins of adultery and murder was Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. And so his son Amnon violates his daughter Tamar. Tamar's full brother Absalom then plots Amnon's death. Absalom then is banished and David refuses to see him for five years and eventually, uh, you know, stages a coup against David. On his deathbed, his other son Adonijah tries to hijack the kingdom. David's family was a mess. He's not a good example of fatherhood. His self-glorious pride. In 2 Samuel 24, David, out of pride, wants to number the people. Even Joab tried to discourage that. 70,000 people are killed by a pestilence as a result. So friends, here is David. A saint, yes. A wonderful, admirable, exemplary saint in so many ways. But a redeemed sinner, yes. He is, as we all are, as believers, a person with contradictions. Godly, walking with God, empowered by God so often, but at other times would be able to say with Paul, oh, wretched man that I am. The evil that I don't want to do, I do. The good that I want to do, I don't do. David is not the king the world needs, but Jesus is. The father testifies at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and never displeased. I added that, but that's what he's saying. He stands before even his enemies and says, which of you convicts me of sin? And there's crickets. Even Judas who betrayed him cries out, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. The believing thief on the cross says, this man has done nothing wrong. The Apostle Paul declares, he, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us. The Apostle Peter weighs in and says, Christ also died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. The author of Hebrews speaks of Jesus as holy, harmless, undefiled. And the Apostle John adds his voice, saying, in him there is no sin. The best of men are men at bests. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. David, a good man. The best of kings, not good enough. But Jesus is. Pray. Father, thank you for the many ways that King David points us to your son, But above all, we see you, Lord Jesus, the perfect king and the king that we need to rule over us. And we thank you.